Welcome to the Mastering College to Career Podcast, where we're here to help you land your dream job. So if at any time during this episode you find any value, please make sure you take a screenshot and you share it with a friend. And don't forget, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. That will mean the world. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. All right, podcast audience, I want you guys to be the first ones to know that I will be conducting live free online training on how to get a job with a Fortune 500 company. Yes, it's how you get a job with the companies that receive thousands of applicants per job opening and how with this three secrets that I'll cover in this live training class, you will be able to stand out amongst the crowd. So I'm gonna talk about in this um, training, I'm gonna talk about three things. Number one is the real reason why most students receive rejection emails. And I'm gonna teach you how you can prevent this from happening and pretty much practically guarantee that you get at least an interview. Um, And I know you all get those emails. I've gotten those emails myself, right? We are sorry to inform you that we've decided to move with another candidate. Yes, I hate those emails and I don't want those emails for you. So I'm gonna tell you how you avoid those emails. Um, Number two is I'm gonna talk to you about how receiving a job offer from a Fortune 500 company is as simple as an open book test. And you do not need the perfect GPA, that 3.5, 3.9 GPA, or a particular major like accounting or finance or engineering to get those job offers either. You can still get job offers without that perfect GPA or a particular major. Um, And then secret number three is I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna talk about how Fortune 500 companies handle campus recruiting and how you can take advantage of this inside secrets to set yourself apart from thousands of other candidates. Um, Whether this is your first time listening to this podcast or this is your hundredth, um, you know, I've, I've personally been on the other side, right? I've been on campuses representing PepsiCo, interviewing, talking to people. I know how this works. I've interviewed hundreds of other companies and understand how this works. So I decided to put this free online training for you. So if you are interested, I only have a spot for 100 students. It's just really what Zoom, the platform that I use, allows me to have. Um, go to masteringcollege2career.com forward slash free training to register. First 100 students get access. The other ones, you snooze, you lose, buddy. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to this episode of the Mastering College 2 Career Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is personal finances. If you know me, this is something that I talk about. And if you know me really well, you know I've definitely brought this subject up. And the guest that I have today, um, I'm going to put all his amazing information on the bio, but I'm going to tell you guys my introduction of it. I met Adam when I was a college student and I was, um, I went to a conference for the business fraternity that I was part of and Adam was one of the speakers and Adam was probably one of the first um, speakers, authors that really influenced me. By this time, I was already listening to audiobooks and I, I understood the value of personal development. But in terms of money, I never really read a book about personal finance. So Adam's book was the first one. And even throughout, since I graduated now, I've always followed Adam. And one of the things I remember seeing a couple of years back is a TED Talk that he did 
where he, and if you guys know, I love Monopoly, where he played Monopoly with his kids for real money. And I'll ask him about that in the podcast. Anyways, Adam is somebody that I am so excited to have on the podcast. I just read during this weekend, I read his last book and that's what we're going to talk about today. So Adam, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Daniel, I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here, man. I remember actually meeting you at that DSP event and uh, being very impressed with who you were and what you were after. So it comes as no surprise that you are now helping young people master college to career because it, it seems like you were on that same path not too long ago. And, uh, and it looks like you did it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm ex- I don't know if I did. I'm, I'm work in progress like everybody else, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I'm a, I don't know if you remember this. You, I remember when, so you were going in the front of this, the, the, when you talked, and at the end, you would sell your book. And yep. you, I, you would say, don't buy this book for me. Don't buy it for me. I don't need it. Buy yep. this, kid, this book for my kids because every dollar <laughs> I make from this book goes to, my, to their college fund. You still do that? Uh, I do still do that. Although I have to be careful now because, uh, and, and I should be honest, uh, one of the things that I've shifted is we've started a scholarship fund um, for other kids as well. We're, we're endowing it right now and we'll launch it here in the next couple of years. But um, every dollar from book sales now goes to the scholarship fund because my kids, I think, will be okay for college at this point. <laughs> but, um, but yes, I used to say every dollar we make from the books um, and if you're watching this on video, I'd hold the book up. I'd point to it. Don't buy this book for me. Buy it for my kids. My kids need it more than I do. Uh, so yes, that was a good sales tactic I learned early on. If nothing yes. else, it got a laugh, right? It did. I mean, I, I bought a book. Um, and so look, so I, we're going to talk about your new book. I, I recently, I just read it. It's designed for students. And I just read it because yeah. I want to be able to give you know, advice is more relatable to students. A lot of what I read yeah. now about personal finance is more, it's not targeted towards students, which right. most books out there is not. And right. what I want to do is I also want to be very open with the students about my personal finance journey from going from growing up with a family of making less than $25,000 a year, like bless my mom. She worked really hard, but she wasn't the smartest with money um, to how I manage my finance now that I am married. And um, I'm, I'm planning for the future. So I want to talk about, have this conversation and I'm going to share what I did right, right? And I'm going to share what I did wrong as a student and what I wish if I can go cool. back in time, what I would have done. Yeah. But Adam, let's start with, you know, tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, and what you do. Yeah. Well, I make, uh, I make my living uh, and I sometimes I have to pinch myself to even come to this realization, but I make my living going out and presenting a topic that I love to groups that I'm passionate about. So I've been a speaker on college campuses for the past 15 years. And that business has grown into doing work with banks and credit unions in the area of financial literacy and financial education. And um, uh, I've written a couple books. I created a documentary on the student loan debt epidemic and we happened to sell that to CNBC as well as a couple of Fortune 500 companies that sponsored it. So in all, um, uh, I guess in, in the greater picture of things, I'm a mediapreneur today. And I like to think that I create content and then I go out and deliver that content. So we're both a, a media and, a, and an events company. 
media in the sense that I'm creating video and audio content and um, events being that I get to go out and speak to really incredible groups all across the country. And that's amazing. How did you find this passion of yours? Like, when did you realize like, hey, I, I don't longer want to do like what everybody else is doing and I want to create yep. my own way? Uh, you know, there, I'll go back a, a ways, but there is a, um, a biological phenomenon. It's your, your prefrontal cortex. It's the last part of your brain that actually fully develops. And I learned one, once that the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop in men until their mid to late 20s. And in women, they get their prefrontal cortex in like their early 20s. So it was at the age of 28 where I think my prefrontal cortex finally grew into place. And, and I started thinking ahead and, and making rational decisions. And I was actually working for a sales organization, driving around the city of Denver, Colorado, listening to motivational messages in my car. And I remember listening to Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield, Les Brown, uh, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins. And Mark Victor Hansen said, public speaking is one of the greatest professions because you get to impact people's lives, you get to travel the world, and you get paid pretty well because most people don't like to do it. And at that point, I, I immediately had this thought of, that's what I want to go do. And I knew that I, my entire upbringing and, and college career and everything I did after college was leading me towards that. But it wasn't until I made that decision that that's what I was going to go do, did I actually pursue it with, you know, with passion and intention. And why, how did you decide on focusing on financial literacy? Like you could be speaking about anything, sales. I mean, yep. why financial literacy? Um, you know, right after I graduated from college, I realized that I had been a rich college kid. And then I quickly became a broke professional. So I was living on borrowed money, student loans and credit cards. Like I graduated with $8,000 in credit card debt, $8,000. And almost all of it was spent at a place called Shag Nasties. You know, I mean, it was just, it was dumb. I was totally dumb. And, um, but I, I thought that if I appeared successful, that I would then be successful. And it occurred to me after I graduated from college and struggled for the first two years that I really needed to get my head on straight when it came to money. And lucky for me, I met a woman my senior year in college who told me get rid of your debt or I'm going to get rid of you. And um, she's been my wife for almost 20 years now. And um, she and I embarked on this journey of uh, rapidly accelerating our debt payoff, of creating a, a massive emergency fund and, and an opportunity fund. And she really inspired me to go after the financial literacy piece. And I love it. I mean, no, nothing creates freedom more than having your money head on straight. I mean, you could, it's amazing how fast two people that have similar goals can create financial freedom for themselves. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about your new book, Mastery of Money for Students and yep. tell us why you wrote it and kind of like when we can dive into the material. Yeah, so I wrote the book, uh, obviously I, my first book was called Winning the Money Game. And winning the money game was really written at like an eighth to 10th grade level. Um, the reason we wrote the book was uh, my, my business partner, Chad Carden and I 
had said, hey, we, want, we think we could go out and deliver this on, in high schools and colleges all across the country. Well, we started on the high school market and they said, no way, not interested. We're not taking an hour of our class period to talk about money of all things. And um, so I took that book to the college market and the college students really loved it. They loved the messaging, but I felt like something was missing in that book. And that's the reason I wrote the next book, Mastery of Money for Students. Um, so I, I wrote it at more of a college level. And what I was attempting to do, Daniel, was share with the reader everything they needed to know to be successful with money prior to leaving school. Because I feel like, and, and you could probably comment on this, college students everywhere, they make very emotional decisions around money. And then they are, they're thrust into that emotional world after college because they're like behind the eight ball constantly. So I got to take a new job to get more money so I can pay my bills. Okay, well, I hated that job. So I took this other job and I'm making less and now I'm even more emotional. So I wanted to take the emotion out of it and create very logical decision making as it relates to money for the student market. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the decisions that you make while you're in college, well, it's not what I, th I mean, that's the reality, right? It will impact you for the rest of your career. And, and the decisions you make financially will either set a really good foundation or really put you way, way behind. Yeah. And it's just little tweaks, right? It's like I, I, somebody was explaining to me, um, I'm not that smart to figure this concept out, but if you just make a couple of degrees adjustments long-term, you, you, there's some massive changes. It's huge. Yeah, and it's so huge. I'm excited to talk about this topic because even though it's not so, it's not so much about relating about getting a job. I think you creating the right habits now as a student is going to allow you to actually choose a job that you love versus a, maybe a job that you don't like but pays you more because now you have to pay the student debt and the credit yes. card debt. Um, so let's talk about it and let's talk about some of the, the major areas of the book and, and let's let students understand what why is money so important and also yeah. like, why do you why did why did they not teach this in college or in high right. school right yeah it's um it, that's that's the biggest question i think is why are we not talking about this first of all my daughter's in advanced placement statistics right now she wants to be a teacher now I, I applaud her for taking AP stats, but, and she was bemoaning the fact she, well, not she, cause she's my, ch my child, but some of her friends were bemoaning the fact they had to take a personal finance class before they graduated. And my logic is what, wh where do you think stats is going to play in where personal finance wouldn't be more important? I mean, I think we ought to scrap some of the algebra and calculus and stuff that kids are taking but are never going to use and exchange it for personal finance like understanding how credit works and because the reality is daniel that we will borrow for the rest of our lives but if we don't understand what we're doing in the borrowing we will be behind the financial eight ball the entire time yeah right and so how, where do we start where do you want yeah. to start <laughs> So I think, um, you know, from a student perspective, there's one thing that's happening that maybe we can set the stage with this. I think societally, we've come to a point where parents will say, I love my kids, therefore I don't want them to struggle. And so what I see is that 
you know, I've been on 750 college campuses and I've talked to hundreds of thousands of students and I can tell you which ones uh, have their parents paying all the bills and which ones are not paying the bills. Because the kids whose parents are paying the bills, they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know, I just, I don't have any experience in it. Uh, you know, I've, I've never paid that bill or I just charge my gas and my dad covers it or whatever the case is. And I believe that what young people need to realize early on is that your financial success is 100% up to you. It's not up to your mom and dad, it's not up to the school, it's not up to your boss, it's not up to the government. It is 100% up to you. And if, if we are all going to be successful financially, then we have to dive into books like mine and others and study this stuff and actually start putting into practice sound money management and understanding debt and understanding uh, investments. Um, so, so starting with number one, it is 100% up to your audience, you know, to be successful. I think that's the, that's where we begin. And so it's up to, it, I agree with it, you know, it's up to you as a student. And so now I'm a student and I, and I say, okay, Adam, I'm, I hear you. It's up to me. Yep. I don't even know where to start. Like my yep. whole life, everything that I needed really was given to me. If I needed money, I just go mom, dad. Can I get money? Yep. Why start? Why start? Where? Where do I start? Where to start? Yeah, where do you start? Um, well, number one, and, and this is a, a fairly simple concept that I write about in the book, but it's coming to the realization that your parents don't want to support you forever, nor should they. They, they have retirement to cover. They have their own expenses that they're looking forward to, uh, to spending and investing in. Um, so where do we start? Number one, where I think people need to start is what is their relationship to money? What is, as they grew up, they heard messaging from their parents and we have to get really, um, really clear about what the messaging was growing up around money. So in the Botero household, um, you mentioned that, that, you know, it, it wasn't plentiful, maybe it wasn't like super abundant all the time. So the question would be where, uh, what was the messaging around that? Is it, Hey, we can't afford it. Um, that's too expensive. Uh, you know, we won't ever have things like that. If those are the kind of messages kids hear, then they begin to think that way. Yeah. And so where I want, uh, young people to start is asking questions like, how could I afford that? So I'm looking at a new car, right? How could I afford that? What would I need to do in order to get that? Um, breaking down, uh, are you an hour uh, per hour worker? And if you're a, a paid by the hour worker, could you figure out a way to make money in commission or selling a product or you know, building something and, and selling it online? Like we just have to start thinking differently. So, yeah. And, and I, you know, when I was growing up, I, I used to think about it as like, I had a negative, right? Like I would not, I never really felt like I could ask my mom for money because I knew that she was already working seven days a week. And, and so I always was trying to figure out how to make money. So like a lot of people who, who know my story knows that I started selling water to people who play soccer behind my house. And I sold Lacoste shirts out of my high school locker room um, until I got robbed and I stopped selling them. <laughs> yeah. um, 
And then, but I was always trying to figure out how to, how to wait, how to make money. And not because I felt like I was like super entrepreneur or the next Bill Gates, but it was more because I didn't want to ask my mom for money. Um, yeah. And that still, but that still didn't change the fact that even though I made, was making really good money for my age, I was still blowing it. Right. Because I didn't have right. the basics understanding of like, I love what you talked about the 10, 10, 70 rule, right? Yeah. No one was teaching me that. So it was a hundred percent spend. Yep. Um, and so I did it. And so I think that students understanding that concepts of the basics, it's important for them to know now and set those foundations early on while you're not making that much money because yep. it'd be so much harder for you to save 10, 10, 10, or even yes. better than later when you're making money because saving if I'm making $30 a, a week, right? Saving $3 here, $3 here, $3 here is a lot easier than if I'm making $3,000 a week and saving 300, 300, 300. Yep. Well, and I, and going back to your first question about where do people begin? I think that's where they start, Daniel. It's if, if you are grow, if you are in an environment where if you need money, you call mom or dad, or I need to go to work to make money and then I spend it right away. What I want you to do is figure out a number that you would like to set aside. So is it, is it 500? Is it a thousand? Is it 2000 or $5,000? Set that number up in your mind and just start squirreling money away into that account that you never touch. You will not touch it until it hits that magic number. And that becomes the beginning of uh, number one, your understanding that you can actually amass wealth. I think the majority of people out there don't have an amassed wealth, Daniel, because they never ever tried and they never put a number in place and said, I come hell or high water, I'm going to hit this number. Instead, it was like, well, I got up to five or 600 and then I took a trip or my car broke down or whatever. And I, and, and I just stopped. Um, Cause I think that when people realize that you can set aside 5,000 or 10,000 or $20,000 in an account, a whole lot of things become possible because now you've proven to yourself you can do it. And so how do you, how do you start that? Like, so you're talking about making sure you, you have that emergency fund saved up. Yep. Um, what is, if I'm a student, I, maybe I'm working an internship that pays me, maybe I'm working part-time as a server. Like the, the most common jobs for students are re, sales, retail associates yep. and serve and working in a restaurant. Yep. Um, and so they, they make okay money. Like as servers in Orlando make $50,000 a year. Yeah. Can make good money for sure. Yeah. For sure. So, so I know you recommend, so like opening a second bank account is kind of away from one that's easily accessible. Yep. And then let's talk about, is there like the ratios, right? Like the, the 30, yeah. 30, 30, and why should you, what are the different buckets that you recommend saving for? Yep. So what you're referring to, I think is the 10, 10, 10, 70. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the way that essentially what it is uh, ultimately at the, at the, at the very baseline are habits. And our goal is to set up the right financial habits right now while you're in college. So here's what those habits look like. You go to work, let's say 10 hours a week, you make $10 an hour, you made $100 in a week, 
you do that four weeks out of the month, that's $400 that you're going to get paid. And the habit that I want you to set up is set aside 10% of that money for saving. And that saving goes into a long-term emergency savings bucket that you don't have access to with an ATM card. So that's like a money market account. And if you were to start that as a freshman, $40 a month keeps going into that emergency save, save account. Over the course of four years, you'd have $2,000 set aside. That's enough to go get your life started, you know, down payment on an apartment, uh, two months looking for a job, whatever it may be, that's enough to get you going. So $40, uh, 10% to saving, 10% to investing. So if you can swing another 10%, that 10% goes into things like an S&P 500 index, or maybe at this point in your life, it's just buying one stock. So like saying, I'm going to buy Nike or Apple or Netflix or Verizon, and I'm just going to invest in that stock because I know that over the course of the next five years, if all I'm doing is putting 40 bucks in Verizon, uh, over the course of four or five years, it's going to be a pretty steady chunk of change, right? And again, what we're doing is we're creating the habit of putting this money away. So people will say, well, where can I make the most? The reality is investor per investor performance does not matter right now. It's investor behavior. So we just want to set all the right behaviors in place, saving, investing, and then last is giving. So if you are someone who, uh, you know, wants to tithe, whether it be to a church or to a charity, 10% of what you make, if that's going out, what we're doing is we're leveraging the law of reciprocity, the idea that givers get and, and what we give out, we're going to receive tenfold. We don't know where or how, we just know that it's going to happen. And, and that's amazing. So I'm going to share a little bit of my story and mm -hmm. we could dive into it. But yeah, when I graduated college, so I, I, I remember, so I had a really good job at, at working for Frito-Lay PepsiCo and my starting salary was $60,000 a year. So, which was an amazing at 2012 is amazing now. And I remember that I, my goal was to live below my means. And I remember one professor had told me, that if you could live like a college student, and I might mess up the numbers here, but if you could live like a college student for five years, you could retire 15 years earlier, all right? And, um, and, 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 and I remember asking him, like, what do you mean by that? By that? Like, all I have to do is live, like, broke for five years, and then I can retire 15 years earlier. And essentially what he was saying is, if you could keep your expenses as low as they are currently as a college student, like I think more, most college students live off like less than $15,000 a year and save the rest and invest the rest based on compound interest, you would be able to retire 15 years earlier than if you were to increase your living expenses yep. to like $30,000 a year. And so I remember listening to him and I moved into a house in a sketchy area of, the, of, of Orlando uh, <laughs> yeah. with roommates and I was paying $900. Our rent was $900 divided by three utilities, oh everything, utilities, everything total out of pocket for living expenses was less than $500. And I was wow. making $60,000 a year. And I remember that, I was saving so much money. I was paying off. I graduated with $20,000 of student debt. 
um, zero dollars in credit cards just because I wasn't, I didn't get any. Like if, if I, if I was accepted to credit cards, I would have, but I didn't have yeah, a right. or anything. I had, I had a credit card that I had to have $500 in a savings account and then they'll give me $500 <laughs> worth of credit yeah. limit. <laughs> and so anyway, so $20,000 of student debt, I was making good money. I, I lived like a college student and within a year, Adam, I was, I, my my definition of American dream was to buy a house. So I met with a banker right after I graduated. I said, Hey, I have a good job. And he said, well, we'll let you borrow $250,000 based on your income. If, but you have to be in this job for one year. We're not just mm-hmm. going to let you borrow it. I think it's the, the rule is if you have to be in a job for two years, but if you come straight out of college is one year. Yep. So a year exactly from graduation, I go and I, 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 I get a pre-approval from a bank, I get a realtor, and then I go and I build a house. And, you know, I, I go back and forth whether that was the best decision. Um, at the end of the day, this house is where I live now. We build it from scratch I had, because I had so much money saved for down payment. I bought all the furniture, cash. Um, it was, I remember going to Black Friday and spending $3,000 and furnished my whole house, appliances and everything. That's awesome. Um, it's awesome. But I think about if I would have done that for five years, right? If I would have lived, right. my friends still lived in that house for at least two more years. And uh, they were making less than I was, but they're probably better off financially than I was just for the fact that they stayed paying $500 a rent. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I think this would be one of those, this is a huge life lesson for you sharing with everyone else is that if you can live like a broke college kid for the next two to five years after graduating and delay the, uh, you know, stuff which is like, we just want to buy stuff, you know, a good friend of mine, he, he said, here's the thing when we're young, we just want to buy stuff. So we get out, we start making money. It's like, Oh, I need stuff. I'm going to buy stuff. And then you want nicer stuff. So you buy nicer stuff that's more expensive. Then you just want different, nicer stuff. So you get different, nicer stuff. And then at some point you graduate into just having things that are significant. And, and I, I would like to think I'm at a point now where I just want significant things in my life. Now, if you look around, I have way too much stuff in here as it is, but, but I have stopped buying. I only buy what is significant for me. You know what I mean? There's so, so if, if young people can put off that instant gratification of getting stuff and do it for five years, sock that money away, pay off debt, invest, you're right. They could retire 15 years earlier. Yeah. I just think about it. Like if I can go back, like I go back, like I said, I, I, what I did was great. And, and, and is helped me so much financially, like that house that I bought, um, I have, over a hundred thousand dollars in equity in that house because I bought it at that time. But a lot of that had to do with the timing of buying it, not because I was such a smart investor and bought the house at the right time. Sure, right sure. Like I did zero, zero research on the area where I bought the house. It's like, oh, it's a good area. Cool, great. Yeah, um, right. But if I can go back in time, like I think I would have probably bought the house that I was living in. Yep. I already had two tenants. And then probably would have bought a duplex or a, a quadruplex in the same yeah. area because actually the neighborhood where I live now is a really up and coming area. 
And that house I probably would have been able to buy for less than $115,000. Right. Even double in price now. Totally. And, but here's a, a mistake that I see students make the most. They graduate and the first major thing they buy is a brand new car. Yes. Totally. What are your thoughts on buying a brand new car? Well, I both understand why it's done yeah. because typically you've been driving a beater for the last X number of years. And now it's like, I'm tired of paying uh, repairs and we start to justify, well, my payment is only, you know, $400 a month and I'm making 60. So this, this is a good deal for me. Right. I think similar to your point about living for five years, like a broke college kid, if you can muscle on an older car for at least five years till your mid to late twenties, then decide to move on to the next car. You're in, you're in a way better position. Um, I think as a general rule of thumb, a new car loses the number is it varies, but 20 to 30% of its value. The minute you drive it off the lot, and I would rather, if you're going to buy a car, go buy a three or a five-year-old used car or get one that has, you know, 5,000 miles at least that someone drove and then turned back in because they've already driven the depreciation out of it. So as an example, I bought a, I bought a, a Nissan Altima that had 3,000 miles on it. Someone went and drove it for a month and then turned it back in but it was a $32,000 car that I bought for $22,000 and have driven that car. It's nearing a hundred thousand miles right now. Um, but my kids will take it and it's been paid off for three years. So, you know, it's like a car like that doesn't owe you anything where a brand new car, not only will you owe on it for a good long time, you may end up having negative equity that you have to roll into the next car purchase. So, yeah. Yeah, I see like, I think it's really hard because sometimes a lot when people are going to buy a new car, the, the salespeople are just so good at really understanding what's more important to you, like having a really low down payment and, and, or whatever it is. Or like I, even like for somebody like my mom, who maybe not be the most financially literate person, I remember her going and getting a car and. She's like, well, I really got a good deal. I, I'm only paying $350 a month. And then I realized that it's because it's a seven-year lease. Right, seven right. Year loan. Um, and so, yeah, sure. If, if you divide something by enough years, it'll get low enough. Um, totally. But, so I just think you just got to get educated, especially what I, I just encourage students to do is on the big ticket items. Like the, the, the bigger the ticket item, the more research you should put into it because that's where you get the big savings. It's not saving a dollar here and there, and which that's important too, but it's on the, on, on like the cars, the houses where you rent. Um, no doubt. Adam, you talked a lot about, um, in, in the book, you talked about playing offense and defense. I yes. would love to talk about that concept because I think students can really relate and understand yeah. why you, it's not just about making more money, it's both. So let's talk about both yep. the defense and then the offense. Cool, so defense, in my mind is about limiting what your monthly expenses are. So we're constantly suppressing what our upward creep of expenses. Um, there's something called Parkinson's law that says that expenses will always rise to meet income. So as your income increases, all those expenses will generally increase as well. So for me, defense means we constantly push down, keep down what our expenses are. 
And you do that through, it could be clipping coupons. It could be, uh, you know, making meals at home. It could be, um, when you go out, you, you, you tailgate before you go out, you know, those kinds of things. Um, offense is about making more money and there's a number of ways to do this. So if we're talking about mastering college to career, one of the best ways to do this is to get really, really good at negotiating your starting salary. Because for most people, they come out of college and, and I, actually we'll use you as an example, Daniel, you had a really good salary coming out. I mean, 60 mm -hmm. K is, that's an amazing amount of money for a recent graduate. Was that negotiable for you or did they say, hey, here's the starting salary and you took it? I asked for it. I asked, I negotiated it, but I, looking back at it, I didn't negotiate the, the I, re, I negotiated the wrong way. So I, this is a good conversation, right? I asked to negotiate and then they said no. And then I ended the conversation and I took 60, right? Funny part is that I helped so many people get into PepsiCo and I knew how to negotiate it from th that point of view. So even when I had friends yep. coming in, I knew that they couldn't negotiate the salary. The salary was set by headquarters and everybody in the management training program that I was part of made yep. that money, but I knew they could negotiate other things. So they had um, like a sign-in bonus was one of the things I could have negotiated. Um, relocation is something that you can negotiate. Totally. Those were the main things that you, when it came to my particular position, looking back at it, those are things that you can negotiate. So yep. I, I missed out on $10,000, right? Like yep. that was the max that I've seen somebody negotiate that if I were to go back and ask for those things reasonably, they would have been able to accommodate. Yep. And I think that's the, the underlying message is, is offense. Number one is about making sure that you're getting paid what you're worth when you go out into the market for the first time. And the way to do that for your listeners is, let's say we're in an interview and I say, hey Daniel, we'd love to have you on board. $50,000 is a starting salary. What do you say we get you started? And I'm immediately going in for the close because I think if I shake your hand, you're like, yeah man, done. And 50 grand for most 22 year olds feels like a million dollars because you've never made that much money before. And instead what I want your listeners to do is to say, Hey, Adam, I really appreciate the offer. Super generous. Um, I'd like to go home and think about it for 24 hours and talk to some of my advisors. Would that be fair? And they're going to go home and their advisors could be their cats. I don't care who they're talking to. You know, they're going to go online and they're going to look up what does this position in this city typically pay for a median salary? And they're going to look on payscale.com and indeed.com and LinkedIn and other places. Um, but they'll come back the next day and say, based on my research, I found the median income for a role like this is really closer to 65,000. And based on my expenses and some of my goals for my career and income wise, I really would like to be closer to 62. Is that possible? And then we just stop. And as you stop, you're going to, there's going to be silence on the other end of the line, but the person is thinking through okay, I have a budget of X to Y. I need to make sure that um, I've got room for training and merit bonuses and whatever. And I may say, I can't do 62, but I could do 60,500 very comfortably, right? And if we can do that, let's get you started. Well, you just negotiated 10 grand, 10, five more than what was originally offered. 
So that's good offense. Um, what, what comes to mind for you when I tell you that? What comes to mind to me is I, I, now that I do this now for a limit, like this, my, my whole thing is helping students get jobs. I, 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 that advice you gave is, is amazing, right? And I think students need to go in there with a ratio and not so much with a set number because it's not so much about you win, I lose. It is more about coming to a, a win-win situation. And, and when you give a ratio, you give the other side um, the ability to, to play with you, right? Um, yep. The other thing I would say is not just, don't think about it just winning, whether it's maybe you, you, you're at 50 and they say, hey, Daniel, it's only 50, I can only give you 52 or 53. It's not yep. just $2,000 or $3,000. It's $2,000, $3,000 for the rest of your life. Right. Um, and then another thing that I think about is, which was the case for me is, it's not just what, if, if, they are, if they cannot negotiate on salary, what other benefits are out there, right? Can you get yep. an extra vacation day? And there's a quantifiable price for that, right? Yep. Um, if you get an extra vacation day in easy math, like if you make $52,000 a year, you just made an extra $1,000. No doubt. So, no doubt. So it's not, it's not that it needs to be money in your salary for you to still make money because if that's an extra $1,000 that you make. Um, also, if it's not so much about vacation, it could also be the ability to work from home. And if you work from home, maybe you save two hours on a commute and you can, that's two hours that you can invest on a side hustle that you can then make money. Right. Yeah. So I think about for when it comes to negotiating and playing that offense, what comes to mind to me is there's so many more variables than just money. And, and it's such an important thing that people don't do. And you know, what's so sad. And I talk about this to my wife more lately is that women are the ones that are not asking for they're They're the least likely to ask for that to negotiate at all. Women are, are just like, yes, I'll take it. And women that are listening to this, you guys make up the majority of college population. You should be negotiating too. Yep. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. Um, I just had this discussion with someone the other day. They said, uh, exactly what you did. Women typically are not negotiating enough for their starting salary. So yeah, your, your female audience definitely needs to pay attention and, and just do, do the research, look up what, what the salaries are for these roles and don't be afraid to ask for it. Um, the other, the other thing I want to mention real quick, Daniel, on the offense side is realizing that while your job is important and what you're making in your job is important, if you have student loan debt, if you have credit card debt, um, if you're wanting to go travel or invest or you're finding it hard to save, the other way to practice offense is to figure out how do you make money on the weekends? How do you make money as a side hustle? Whether it's serving and figuring out as a server, can you make just massive cash tips and that becomes your investment money or your debt payoff money? Or for some people I tell them, spend a weekend with a friend going garage sailing or to thrift stores and buy stuff that you turn around and sell on Craigslist for twice what you paid for it. So you don't necessarily have to go work. I don't need to trade a dollar, you know, an hour for a dollar, but you could go trade some work for something that generates money month after month after month over time. And, um, and I think we all need to get really good at practicing those skills as well. I really enjoy that, that aspect, that area of your book, you know, and even the examples that you talked about different college students, whether it was 
somebody who was really good at bowling, I remember you give that example of that student that he just didn't know what skill he had that he could make money. And, and you told him, I'm like, didn't you bowl three perfect games? Like why don't you, how you can, you can go teach bowl teams how to bowl or the lady teaching kids Spanish while they walked or yeah. um, like there were just so many great examples. Even the person that was caught cutting lawns and made it a really big business out of it. Like yep. those, there's just so many ways that, um, that you as a student can, can make extra money and put yourself there. And I love the rule of thumb about how much like the max that you should take out student loans is what you expect to make your first year. Like, I think that, um, I even, you didn't talk about it as much in your book, but I watched your second TED talk, or maybe it was your first TED talk about how, what if, like, maybe you go through that, like the first, the intro to your, one of your TED talks that you talked about, like, doesn't make sense why we give students so much money. Yeah. The house analogy, right? Yeah, I yeah. said, that was my first TED talk. It was at uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee. And the message was basically that, if we are, we are essentially telling 18 year olds, go pick out a home. Could be any home you want. Could be in any neighborhood you want, as big as you want, as small as you want. But you know, the bigger, the better for most people is generally the rule of thumb. Um, don't worry about what it costs. We'll take care of that on the back end. I'm not going to tell you what the payments are because we don't know yet. Um, and we assume that an 18 year old can go make a house purchase like decision and do it in a way that that makes sense to them seven years from now or 20 years from now. And then you get done with your degree and you've got a four bedroom home in a gated community when what you really needed was a one bedroom condo. And, and that's the challenge. We, we will loan money to 18 year olds in mass, that tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands in some cases, but they don't understand what it means to be in that level of debt and how long it takes to pay that kind of debt back. So we've got to, we've got to really, I think we, I say we, society has to do a better job of educating 15 to 18 year olds. Here's what debt looks like, feels like, smells like, acts like. Here's how hard it is to pay it back. So that when we do get to college, it's not like, well, yeah, you know, I, I was 20 grand uh, shy on my tuition. So I just borrowed it for four years. Well, that's 80,000 after interest. It's a hundred thousand. That's insane. Yeah. You know, unless you're an engineer or a doctor, that, that kind of debt is feels insurmountable. And, I, and that is like the concept of it is really hit home to me when I watched it. And that's the kind of one I really wanted to bring it up because you also in, in, in your book, you did talk about how you can save so much money in tuition and, I actually did do a, a, a podcast episode um, with an individual. His name is Dell Leatherwood, and he has a company that helps people save money on college. And, it's, and it was interesting because we talked about, like, we talked about CLEP classes. We talked about AP classes. We talked about dual enrollment. And you could, we talked about the best case scenario, right? Like how best case yep. scenario, if you wanted to get a degree from a, um, a, a state university, like University of Florida, in Florida, you could save 47% if you took AP classes, took CLEP classes, finished your AA at uh, community college, and all you did was the last two years at a state 
university, you would save 47% on your degree by just wow. doing that route. Um, we calculated it. It's awesome. That was insane. So, um, Adam, where can they find you? Where can they find this book? Um, yep. Any last piece of advice? Yeah. So the best place to go to, to find me and find anything that I'm doing is, is at Adam Carroll. That's A-D-A-M-C-A-R-R-O-L-L dot info. So if you want info on me, it's adamcarroll.info. Um, I'll tell you what, for, for people who are interested in the money side, go to masteryofmoney.com. And there you can get the Mastery of Money for Students book. You can check out the YouTube channel, Mastery of Money, where we um, are putting out great content on the regular uh, that helps students with offense and defense. And, um, and I'm working on a new book here in the next year. It's going to be Mastery of Money for Parents, because I think that one of the biggest pitfalls today is that parents just aren't teaching their kids what they need to know about money. So that will be the next book and that'll be available out at masteryofmoney.com. That's awesome. Adam, again, thank you so much for joining the podcast. This has been an amazing episode. Um, students listening to this, I, I really do believe, regardless of your major, regardless of where you are in school, like if you can learn that fundamentals of being smart with your money, how do you play defense and offense? Like it, it, it will change your life. And um, I forgot, uh, I read a crazy statistic that one out of eight divorces are caused because of student debt. Um, the number one reason for divorce is finance, financial, but like it literally was like one out of eight divorces was caused because student debt or maybe one out of 16, maybe I messed it up, but anyway, it's there was probably, a crazy amount of number. I'm sure it is one number. out of eight. Yeah. That's, I that's remember nice. my wife and I talking about it and that was kind of the main reason why I was like, All right, I got to pay the student loans quick. So, um, it's such an important topic, yeah. uh, that whatever you do now as a student will either help you reach your long-term goals or really hold you back. So Adam, thank you so much. I'll put all of Adam's information on the show notes. Make sure you connect with him on LinkedIn. You buy his book. I've already bought it. You'll see my review on the book on Amazon. Uh, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, catch you on the next episode. You have made it to the end of the podcast. Just want to remind you, if you are interested in signing up for that free training class on how to land a job with a Fortune 500 company, head to masteringcollege2career.com forward slash free training to sign up. This is a live class, so you will be able to ask me questions. And remember, this is limited to the first 100 students. See you there. If you're listening to me right now, you, my friend, have made it to the end of the podcast. I want to take some time to thank you and congratulate you for being different and taking control of your career, doing things like listening to this podcast, putting yourself out there and building the experience needed to land your dream job is what's going to set you apart and not be just another statistic. So great job. Keep it up. And if you're enjoying this podcast, Please share it with your friends and make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Talk to you soon.